We're in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm Dominic, if we haven't met. And the title of the sermon is Humility, Gentleness, and Loving Long-Suffering. So just a little background real quick to remind us of where we're at in Ephesians here. Um, Paul, years before he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, spent time in this city preaching the gospel to people who were far away from God, didn't know anything about Yahweh, certainly didn't know anything about Jesus, and people came to faith by the power of the Spirit. They came to faith, started following Jesus, and this church was birthed in Ephesus. After a couple years, Paul leaves, and several years later, he's imprisoned by the Roman authorities for preaching the gospel and bringing people to Jesus. And so he's in Rome in a prison as he's writing back to these people that he led to Jesus years before. And uh, the, the letter, this whole letter of Ephesians, really is about two things. It's really about kingdom family and kingdom family members. And that's why this, this series is like a three-part series. Kingdom Kids, that was the first two and a half chapters of the book. Kingdom Family, that's going to be the rest of the book. And then after that, it'll be the third part, which is Kingdom Come, um, after we're done with the book of Ephesians. But in chapter 4, which is where we're at today, he really changes gears. He like turns a corner and his entire tone changes. Um, he goes from talking about this is who we are as kingdom family and kingdom family members to now this is how we ought to act if we are kingdom family and kingdom family members. This is how we ought to relate to one another. The fancy way of saying that is that the first half of the book is full of indicatives or the declarations and the second half of the book is full of imperatives or the commands. First half of the book, declarations about who Jesus is, what he has done, and who, what that means for us. Second half of the book, all about, okay, now the commands of what it would look like if we actually fulfilled who we were. Billy preached chapter 4, verse 1 last week when it says, Therefore, that means in light of everything that happened for the first three chapters, in light of the declarations, now walk worthy of this calling. And to walk worthy means literally to fulfill. It doesn't mean like walk deserving. That's not what Paul's saying here. Like you better, you got to earn this. You got to deserve it. Act like, act like you deserve it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying walk fulfilling the calling that you have been called to. What's the calling? Well, the calling is to be a kingdom kid in God's kingdom family. Uh, we all have specific callings as well, but that's not what Paul is talking about here um, in Ephesians. He's talking about what it would look like now for somebody to walk out their identity as a kingdom kid in the kingdom family. Again, Billy's verse he covered last week, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. How do we walk worthy or fulfilling the calling? Well, today's verse tells us, Ephesians 4, 2. I'm going to read from the NLT, New Living Translation, um, and then I'll kind of couple that with the New American Standard. He says, this is how we'd walk. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And read it from the NASB gives a little nuance. How would we walk fulfilling this calling as kingdom kids uh, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love? This is God's rich and life-giving word for us today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. 
illuminate your word that is already alive. Open the eyes of our hearts to see. Open the eyes of our understanding to grasp what you're saying to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before digging into the, these, this verse we just read, um, I, I want to just kind of set up this section of the book because it's, it's kind of a lot of the same type of stuff. It's not the same stuff, but it's a lot of the same type of stuff, and it is critical that we get this point. In fact, if somebody's not here at church today and they usually come to church, just tell them, hey, can you please just go listen to the first 10 minutes of Dom's sermon last week? It's that, it's that important for us. So the question is, how do we walk worthy or fulfilling, literally, how do we walk fulfilling the calling that we've been called to? Better said, I'm going to put it up on the screen. What would it look like for a kingdom kid to relate to other kingdom kids in a way that was consistent with what was already true about them? This is the question. This is the question. In other words, what would it look like for us to act in a way that was consistent with how God already sees us? Every command in Scripture actually answers this question. And the next three chapters begin to answer this for us, beginning here in verse 2. This, what we're about to study, is what it would look like if a kingdom kid was to relate to other kingdom kids in a way that was consistent with what was already true about them. Now, the premise for every single thing that we are about to discuss in the rest of this book, as well as for every imperative, every command in Scripture, the premise for all of it is Jesus. The premise for every command in Scripture is Jesus because Jesus has actually already fulfilled all of the stuff that the Bible commands us to do. Look, you can even do it with this verse we just read. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to try putting our names, inserting them into this verse, okay? Go ahead, Robin, put that up there. Put your name right there in the blanks. Blank walks with all humility and gentleness, treats everyone with patience, and shows tolerance for others in love. That's what our verse says, right? Walk out with all humility, all gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So I walk with all humility and gentleness. I treat everyone with patience and show tolerance for others in love. It doesn't work, really, right? But now, because Jesus is the premise, let's put Jesus in there to see if it works. Jesus walks with all humility and gentleness, Treats everyone with patience. Jesus shows tolerance for others in love. Does it work? Okay. Just making sure I was in the right church. The premise for every command in Scripture is Jesus. As Christians, we don't follow a list of rules. We follow Jesus. We are taught from a, a young age that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Here's all the rules. And if you just obey the rules, then you're going to be all right in life. And so then when we meet Jesus, we kind of import that same kind of thinking into our relationship with him. And it's like, Jesus, just tell me the rules. Just tell me what I should and shouldn't do. And if I follow the rules, then I think I'll be all right, right? But when we do this, we change what was intended to be a living relationship into a lifeless list of laws. And that was the old covenant. That was the old covenant, but this is the new covenant. That's not what this is about in the new covenant. In the new covenant, we're not judged according to 
how well we obey a list of laws. We're judged according to not what we have or haven't done. We've judged according to what Jesus has already done for us. As Christians, we don't follow a list of rules. We follow Jesus. However, we don't just follow what Jesus did and how he acts. Otherwise, it would be the same thing. It's like, just do what he does. Okay, now it's just a new list of rules. It's just embodied in a person. We don't just follow what Jesus did or who Jesus is. We actually respond to what Jesus has already done. Rather, we receive and respond to what Jesus has already done. When we're talking about how we act as kingdom kids, that's really what it's about. It's really about receiving what he has done, who he has made us to be. Receiving that, like, this is who you say I am. This is what you've done for me. Okay, I receive that. I let my identity be transformed into that, and now I respond to that. And if you were to really break it down, everything God does is out of his love. And so really, what it's about is receiving and responding to the love of God, simply put. God has loved us, and in turn, we now live from that new place of having been totally loved by God. And what happens is we begin to love him back, and then we begin to love others in the same way that he has loved us. Receiving, responding. And guys, we have to get this. We have to get this, which is precisely why Paul did not begin the book with this list of three chapters of dues. He takes three chapters to make sure that his readers understand what Christ has already done for them, who we are to God and in God, before he says anything about what we ought to do. We spent nine months talking about it, talking about who God is, who, what Christ has done for us, and who we are, what that means about us. And it is because of this that we now transition to the imperatives, and it is mandatory that we view the imperatives in light of the indicatives. It is mandatory that we view the commands in light of the declarations. And we as preachers will do our best to keep the declarations in front of us. But I'm giving you permission right now that if you hear anybody preach from this pulpit who is not preaching commands in light of the declarations, that you have my permission to go and lovingly correct them. Because we are not being faithful to the gospel. We are not being faithful to the gospel if we do not preach the commands in light of the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has already done. We might as well just be preaching old covenant then. That's not what Jesus is. That's not what Christianity is. The gospel is good news. And it's not just for salvation. It is for every single day and every single moment of our lives and everything in the kingdom of God. So it's now in response to what Jesus has already done and who we already are that we dig into some of this nitty-gritty of what it means to walk fulfilling this calling as kingdom kids in a kingdom family. We'll start where Paul starts. Um, we just read the verse. There's three things he brings out here. Humility, gentleness, and loving, long-suffering. We'll call them graces. There's three graces. The first two graces are humility and gentleness. And they're emphasized by this word always. Always be humble. Always be gentle. In the NASB it says with all. It's the word all. With all humility and gentleness. And Paul does this in Ephesians. He'll insert this, this a word like all or always. And it's his way of kind of emphasizing something or the importance 
of it. It's like him underlining or italicizing it or putting it in bold. And he's emphasizing the importance of the necessity of these qualities in the life of the believer. First one, humility. Simply defined, humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Obviously, in a healthy way, as the Bible talks about it. How are we to fulfill the calling with what we've been called to? Well, what would it look like if we were to live out our identity as a kingdom kid? Well, the first thing he talks about, we would walk in humility. We wouldn't walk in arrogance. We would walk in humility. Lowliness is really what this is talking about. John Piper, I think, um, says it so, like, succinctly and good. What Piper says is, humility is the polar opposite of a sense of entitlement. You want to know what humility is? I, I put up the de- uh, dictionary's definition, a modest or low view of one's own importance. But, but biblically speaking, I think Piper says it so good, humility is, a, is the polar opposite of a sense of entitlement. So do you walk through life with your general orientation toward people being, you owe me, or I deserve something from you? You owe me a certain... Um, countenance on your face toward me when I see you on the street. You owe me a certain tone of voice when I talk to you. You owe me a certain level of respect. I deserve you to be understanding with me. Whatever. Fill in the blank. You owe me. And if you don't pay up, so to speak, then I'm not okay with you. That's entitlement. And like Piper says, if this is your basic orientation, then simply put, you're not humble. And I'm not. I'm not this. I'm not humble. Who is? Who is like this? Who doesn't live life like this at least to some degree? (laughs) Well, you know what Paul said about himself? I am debtor to both Greeks and non-Greeks, Romans chapter 1. I am a debtor to Greeks and non-Greeks, basically everybody. I am a debtor to everyone. I owe everybody. Nobody owes me. I owe everybody. How could Paul say that? How could Paul get there? Where does that come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from Paul being stunned by the grace and love of God. When Jesus owed you nothing but hell, he went to the cross and gave his life for you. When you deserve nothing but death, Jesus died for you. And until we are stunned by that, we will always and forever have a sense of entitlement. And until we walk through and and we will walk, rather, we will rock, walk through life with our basic orientation to everybody being, you owe me. I deserve fill in the blank. But when you wake up to the fact that you were owed hell and instead you got heaven, you were owed hell, but Jesus went to hell for you, you got heaven at the cost of the life of the Son of God, Entitlement just like flies out the window. Though he was God, this is Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God 
as something to cling to. You owe me. You owe to view me as God. That would be entitlement. Nope. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. If anyone deserved to be entitled, it was Jesus. But instead, he humbled himself and laid down all of his entitlements. You got a Bible, um, turn over to John chapter 13 or a Bible app. John 13, when you get it, say, got it. If you don't got it, say, I don't got it. Okay, John chapter 13. Starting in verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Let's see what love looks like. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Did you catch it in verse 3? Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So... It's the same word, therefore. Therefore, he washed the disciples' feet. In in light of Jesus knowing who he was and whose he was, he got on his knees like a servant and washed the feet of his disciples, even, might I add, the feet of the disciple that would betray him, knowing that he would betray him. You want to be humble? You can never walk in this kind of humility until you are confident in who God already says you are, which is why Paul spent three chapters before he says any of this stuff about being humble. Jesus could make himself a humble servant because he knew that he was actually a king. That's what it says there. It says there right there, because Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority. He knew who he was. He's like, I know I'm the king. I know I'm already the king. So I don't have to get in my head or worry about what people think about me or or be concerned about humbling myself like a slave. I know who God says that I am. Furthermore, one could never find true humility of the heart until they have been confronted with this kind of humble love from Jesus to us. It's like C.S. Lewis talks about when he's like a person standing close to the fire can then turn around and with the warmth of that heat, then warm others. 
because they have been with the source of the heat. We cannot find this true kind of humility of the heart until we have been confronted with this kind of humble love from Jesus. The next grace that Paul talks about is gentleness. The dictionary defines it as the quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. The biblical definition would be meekness or power under constraint. The word uh, gentleness in, in Greek, it shares the same root as meekness. It's got the same idea. And that's the easiest way to really understand gentleness. Whenever the Bible talks about like be gentle or gentleness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, really to understand it as we understand meekness. But what is meekness? Most of us don't really understand meekness. You may have heard that back in the day in the UK, the horse that would win the horse race was called the meekest horse. They'd be like, and the meekest horse is, and then they'd say the, the horse's funny name or whatever, right? It was the meek horse. And the reason they would do this is because when they would break a horse, they wouldn't call it breaking a horse. They would actually call it meeking a horse, which I think is a better uh, word to describe what actually happens when you do that to a horse. They would call it meeking a horse. To meek a horse didn't mean that you made them weak. To meek a horse meant that you taught them to bridle their strength. The idea of biblical greatness and meekness is this. Biblical meekness is not weakness. Biblical meekness is bridled constraint. The meeked horse has learned to contain its power and focus it. It knows how to manage its inner strength and uses it for a specific purpose. And so while a wild horse may be freaked out every time something startles it, or if a wild horse was in a race, it may be distracted or get off course— because of those running beside it, what does the meek horse do? It sets its eyes on the prize and runs the race. It has learned to harness its power for the purpose of getting to the finish line. That's what a meek horse has done. It's just as strong as it ever was. It's not weak. It's just as strong as it ever was. But now it has learned to harness it, its strength for a specific purpose. To walk in gentleness is not to lack power and authority. It is to harness the power and authority that you already have. You're still in your Bible. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 11. I think this is fascinating here. Matthew chapter 11. When you get it, say, got it. Matthew 11, passage we're all familiar with. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus speaking here. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that the reason why we should come to him and give him our heavy burdens is because he is humble and gentle. Like, you got heavy stuff that you can't carry. 
put it on me. I'm humble and gentle. Like, that's not the descriptors. I'm like, yo, I need somebody to carry this bus on top of their shoulders. Go find me a humble and gentle person, would you? That's not who I'm looking for. But this is what qualifies him, he says. This is what qualifies him to be the carrier of our burdens and to teach us how to walk when we're exhausted, beat up, and tired. Man, that doesn't sound like qualifications. Then Jesus must not be weak. Because when we say humble and gentle, we think weak. But this must not be describing weakness. If it qualifies him to carry our heavy burdens that we can't carry, there must be a difference between weakness and meekness. To be gentle is not to be weak. It is to harness the power that you already have. He is gentle. He is humble. He is power under constraint. And then it says that he does it for us. A horse would be meeked always for a greater purpose. It wouldn't just be meeked to like harness the, the, the power for no reason. It was for a greater purpose. Not back in the day, they wouldn't do races. It was to be used, they'd, they'd herd cattle and they'd use it for transportation. It was harnessed for a greater purpose. Jesus has harnessed his strength when he came for a greater purpose. Greatness, gentleness is to harness power for the purpose of a greater good. And what is the greater good? Well, look at Jesus' words again here in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you. What's he fighting for? What's he doing this for? Come to me, all you. You who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Why did Jesus constrain his power for a greater good? The greater good was us. The greater good was us. It was you and your rest is what it says here. Jesus not considering equality with God as something that he had to hold on to was for our good. Jesus giving his life on the cross, raising from the dead. It was, he didn't need to do that for himself. He didn't have anything to prove. He didn't do that for himself. He didn't need to die for himself. He did it for us in our place. And every single one of us is born with a certain level of power, a certain level of influence, certain gifts and strengths that set us apart. And these are wonderful things. God has given them to us for a reason. But when all of that stuff he's given us is unbridled and unconstrained and unmeeked, we might as well be a wild horse frolicking around in the wilderness. But to learn to harness all of that power and passion and giftedness for a greater good is to learn to walk and live like Jesus. But how? How and why? I mean, how do you get there? Like, do I just white-knuckle it and try harder until I finally, maybe, I won't, but maybe I'll get there? No. How do you do it? You get stunned by the grace and love of God and figure out who you are to God. You get stunned by the gospel and you get secure in your identity. That's it. That's the recipe here. That's what we see with Jesus. Philippians says that he did not count equality with God as something that he had to hold on to. Most of us, man, I mean, at least if it was me, I would show up being like, hey, just so you know, I know, I know you see me as humble and, and meek, but under, under this is like some serious gnarly power. I just want to let you know, I'm actually God. 
Like, just so you know, there is some power in here. Like, that's how I'd be. Just, he didn't need anybody to know, though. He didn't care if anybody knew. He said, is equality with God? It's not something I have to hold on to and advertise. I already know who I am. So who cares if anybody else affirms it? Jesus isn't declaring weakness here in that passage. He's declaring power under constraint. How can he not care if anyone knows that he's powerful? Because he already knows who he really is. He already knows his identity. It's in the verse right before. Look at what Jesus says right before this verse about being humble and gentle and taking on our burdens. Look at his declaration. Verse 27 of Matthew 11 here. My father has entrusted everything to me. He's declaring his identity. He's affirming his identity himself. He knows who he is. My father has entrusted everything to me. Then Jesus said, come to me all you are worried. My father has entrusted everything to me. He's put everything on my shoulders already, is what he's saying. My father has already put it all on my, it's all, he's already put it all on my shoulders. I already know who I am. I'm already all powerful. I'm already God. I'm already the king. I know who I am. Of course I can bear your burdens. I already know who I am. I'm the king. So I don't care if you think I'm weak or if this looks weak to you. I already know who I am. I know who the Father says I am. He's put everything, he's already put it all on me. It starts with identity. This is what Jesus did, guys. This is what Jesus did. But who's like Jesus? Who can, who can do that? And why would you do it? Like, honestly, freely frolicking around in the wilderness kind of sounds nice. Right? Like, no constraints sounds freeing. If you could somehow, though, find the reason why, how do you even exercise that kind of constraint? When we look at Jesus, sometimes we, we make him too much God and not enough man. The Bible says that he is the son of humanity. He is the son of man. That's what that means. He's the son of humanity. Jesus came to show us like this is what it would look like for you to be fully human. I'm also going to show you who God is, but I'm becoming full. I'm emptying myself, right? I'm not, I'm not holding on to, to my deity, I'm emptying myself. I'm becoming a man. I'm showing you this is, this is what life is intended to look like. This is what life is intended to look like. It's all over the Gospels when he's talking to the disciples. This is what life is intended to look like. But Paul is also an example here, and he exercised this kind of constraint as well, this kind of gentleness. Where did he find it? The same place he found humility, when he was stunned by the grace of God and confident about his new identity. You find this kind of gentleness when you yourself are radically confronted with the gentleness of Jesus towards you and confident in who he says you are. The third grace that Paul speaks of is uh, long-suffering, specifically loving long-suffering. Most of your translations probably say patience, but long-suffering is a better translation. Um, and this idea of long-suffering goes all the way back to Exodus 34. Moses is like, God, just show me who you are. 
God's like, I can't. It'll kill you if you see who I am. And he's like, well, do something. And he's like, okay, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by you, and I'll take you out, and you'll see my afterglow. I'll tell you who I am. And he's like, okay. And so does it. And God only says seven things about himself. What's one of them? I am long-suffering. I am long-suffering. The modern translation, like I said, is patience. But I don't like patience because patience is what I need when I'm waiting for food to show up. Long-suffering is what I need when I'm waiting for a difficult person in my life to change, and they may not ever. And God has long-suffering. Jesus illustrates this kind of long-suffering in Matthew 11. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient, long-suffering with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. How often should I forgive someone, Lord? How, how often should I show them grace? And how much grace should I show them, Lord? Only as much as I've shown you, son. Only as much as I've shown you, daughter. Because of God's long-suffering with us, Paul is now exhorting us to act in a way toward others that is consistent with how God has already acted toward us in Christ. And the following phrase here in Ephesians 4, showing tolerance for one another in love, tells us that this kind of long-suffering is the kind that makes an allowance for other people's shortcomings. God, help me. This is the kind of long-suffering that makes an allowance for other people's shortcomings and endures even wrong. Some of your translations may say, bearing with one another in love in Ephesians 4 there. Uh, that means in the midst of tension and conflict, we show patient tolerance and bear with one another's shortcomings rather than flying off the handles in rage, disconnecting and leaving the relationship, or feeling a sense of entitlement that I deserve better from them. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5, and it is a necessary quality for maintaining healthy relationships in the kingdom family of God. And this behavior springs from one place, the love of God. The love of God is both the motivating factor behind God bearing with us and the driving force behind how, how we bear with one another. Humility, gentleness, and loving, long-suffering. But I want to take a few minutes here to just ask, like, okay, that's cool, Dom. Yeah, but how do we get there, dude? Because every time I read a command in Scripture, I'm reminded that like, yeah, I'm not there yet. I know. I know. You don't need to tell me that I'm not doing good enough. I already know I'm not great at this stuff. I already know that I'm not great at humility. I'm not great at gentleness. I'm not great at long-suffering. You already know you want to do better. You already know you want to do better. So what do I do, though? I already know I'm not this. If you don't know, just have a couple kids. My kids are the only creatures on the earth that can somehow extract like things in me that I'm like, oh my God, that was in me? 
I know I want to do better, but how do I get there? As far as I can tell, we got two paths to get there. The natural way and the supernatural way. The natural way says, I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going to try my hardest. I might even implement some kind of like shame or guilt to try to motivate me to get there. And we can actually produce some level of righteous actions from that kind of white knuckling. And there's a lot of people we know who are like that. They, they have good righteous actions. Some people came to my door with white shirts the other day like that. I'm like, dude, good people. But here's the problem with that. There's a difference between a surface action and like a heart change. And when you don't live from your heart, and your heart hasn't been transformed, you're not living out of a new identity, you're just doing things on the surface. You're like an actor. You're, you're acting. And that is so exhausting to live like that, to not live. Are you exhausted? There's some people in here who's exhausted from just trying to, to obey all the things the Bible says. You're just exhausted. You're beat up. Maybe it's because you're not living from your heart of like who God has made you to be. You're just doing these actions and you're disconnected from your identity because you don't even know who you are. It's exhausting to live like that. That's why Paul is like, dude, if you're just trying to obey the law, it's going to kill you. The law brings death, he said. Only the Holy Spirit can bring life. It's going to kill you. Paul, the dude who knew the law in and out, loved the law. It was like the law. He's the one saying that. He's like, it's going to kill you. I've been there. Oh, I'm free now. I'm not tired. I was so tired being a religious Jew, just trying to keep all the rules. Oh, I'm free, everybody. I'm free. I'm not tired anymore, he's saying in 2 Corinthians when he's like, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the old covenant. That is the old covenant. When, but when God talked about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, you know what he said? He said, I'm going to write the law on your heart. That means that no longer are you going to have to try to attain righteousness out there, but rather I'm going to do a supernatural work. I'm going to transform your identity from broken, jacked up, sinner, rebellious, whatever, to a beloved son, daughter, accepted, more than conquered, champion, victorious one. I'm going to transfer your identity. I'm going to transfer who you are, and then you're going to live out of that place. And when you just live from there, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I kind of live righteous. I'm kind of doing all these righteous things. And your actions are now in sync with your heart. There's no, there's no acting anymore. And that's not exhausting. That is life giving. If Paul wanted people to simply act better, he would have started Ephesians with all the do's. But he didn't. He doesn't even let them look at the do's. <laughs> until three chapters are telling them who they are. In fact, if this book is only about doing better, then it is no better than all the other lifeless, life-sucking religious writings in the world. And it will only ever bring you death. But the Holy Spirit gives life and he has breathed onto this. And what is in this is the love of God. And the Holy Spirit reveals to us the love of God. And that is not death bringing. That is life bringing. The gospel does not say do more. Religion says do more. The gospel says it's already done.
You got nothing to prove, Christian. Jesus already did it. There's nothing more you can do to make God more happy with you than he already is. He already loves you with an everlasting love. So then, what do we do with all the commands, Dom? Okay, dude, I want to just think about what God says I am, who God says I am, what Jesus is. I just want to live there. That sounds awesome. But dude, half this book we're studying is about the commands. What do I do with all these commands? Because they're there for a reason, right? Yes. But what Paul is saying is here, let me tell you who you are in Christ. Get that. Get it. Now live from that place. Here's what it would look like if you lived from that place. This is who you already are. Now just live like it. Just live out of that. Like Billy said, quoting his uh, Bible professor in college. The whole of Christianity is all about becoming who you already are. It's all about becoming who you already are. So how does that function practically then? And this is my last little few minutes here. How does that function practically then? How do I get from point A to point B? How do I get from, okay, God is saying who I am. I know who I am. But this is, how, this is what it would look like if I live like that. How do I get there? Well, how did Paul get there? How can he say I'm not entitled to anything or anyone? I owe nobody. I'm sorry. I owe everybody everything. The operating component that got Paul from this is who I am to now I'm living like it was the gospel. The gospel was the operating component. I'm not talking about the gospel like, you're a sinner, you need Jesus to be saved. I'm not talking about the gospel that you preach to be saved. The gospel is for every single day of our lives. The gospel was the operating component. The gospel says Jesus already did it. The gospel says this is who you are now in Christ. It is the gospel that gets us there. It is the gospel that gets us there. Paul was slapped upside the face by the goodness of the gospel. You can't tell me, Dom, you need to be more humble and expect my heart to change. My heart will not change, and neither will yours. Neither will yours. What changes hearts is the love of God demonstrated through the gospel of Jesus revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what changes hearts. And the gospel says that Jesus humbled himself and came and served us until the point of dying on a cross. And when I wake up in the morning and I'm still struggling with the same sin and the same false belief systems and the same weaknesses and Jesus is still by my side, the gospel says that he is lovingly long-suffering with me. The gospel tells me that when Jesus was falsely accused and could have called down a legion of angels to destroy the soldiers who were arresting him, that he constrained his power in gentleness for a greater good. The gospel says that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death. But guys, listen, you got to get this. What is most stunning is not that Jesus humbled himself, that Jesus is lovingly long-suffering, and that Jesus is gentle. What is most stunning is this. Here it is. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, that he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. The gospel is not that Jesus humbled himself, that Jesus is gentle, or that Jesus is lovingly long-suffering. The gospel is that he is all of this and more for us. 
The gospel is good news, right? Well, it's not good news to me that God is just loving and gentle and patient if he's not all of those things to me. The good news is that he's all of that to me. What makes the gospel good, friend, is that he is this to you. He is this for you. You were the one who deserved the criminal's death. I was the one who deserved the criminal's death. I was born in iniquity. Jesus wasn't born in iniquity. I was the one who should have been on the cross, but Jesus took my place. I'm the one who cuts people with my words. I'm the one who puffs my chest and can't give away my pride for the sake of love. Jesus doesn't do that. I'm the one. I'm the one who last week, man, blew up on my son and felt like a failure of a father. That's the kind of stuff I do. That's the kind of stuff I am. I'm the criminal who deserved the cross. I was spiritually bankrupt, is what this passage says. And while I owed a debt that I could never pay, Jesus emptied himself of all of his kingly riches to become impoverished, to be a slave to serve me. He paid my debt with his riches so that I could not only be rescued from my poverty, but then begin given his inheritance. What is crazy is that I know who I really am. I know how jacked I am. But my father says things about me that make me sound like the best dude in the world. That's what's crazy to me. What is most stunning is that Jesus, not that Jesus humbled himself or did all these things, but that he did it for us. How could Paul say, I owe everybody I owe everybody. Nobody owes me anything. He was confronted with this goodness, the good news of the love and grace of God, and then he was transformed and confident in this new identity that God had given him. So yeah, you can white-knuckle it, friend. And some of you have been trying to white-knuckle it for so long. I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to just try to have more gentleness and patience and humility in every single other of the hundreds of commands we see in Scripture. But the truth is, until you are stunned by the grace and love of God that he has demonstrated to you in Jesus, you will never truly be able to hear and receive what God says about you, and you will always and forever be crushed under the weight of the law that you were never intended to fulfill apart from the good news and the transformation of the gospel. On the flip side, though, when we, like Paul, have our eyes open to the great and glorious goodness of the grace and love of God, then how could we not treat others in the way that we have been treated by him? It'll just, like, flow out of us. And when we become so secure in who God says that we are, then who cares how the people respond when I try to walk in humility or gentleness or loving long-suffering? Who cares? I know who my Father says that I am. So this doesn't land on you making a commitment to do better, to try better today. This lands on you really needing a revelation of God's heart for you. Amen? So I'm going to pray that now for us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see how the Father has loved us and what he thinks about us. Give us a revelation of the Father's love that stuns us 
and stops us in our tracks. Like to just be still for a moment here as the band starts to starts the song. And just in your own words, identify some things about yourself that you've been believing that are lies some identity things. And then say, but Father, what do you say about me? Who do you say I am? This is something I practice almost every day of my life because I have a tendency to believe a lot of lies about myself, which make me believe certain things about who God is and who other people are. So during the second set, I would encourage you to just identify the false identity things, the false belief things, and then say, but Lord, who do you say I am? In my life, it is when I have gotten that, that all these do's and don'ts just naturally start happening.